My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mystic Mark, and on today's episode, Ron from New England, my buddy, host of the Wicked Planet podcast, was kind enough to join us for a fantastic interview. Thomas, aka Paranoid American, also joined us, us being Tara and I. Tara recently joined me on an interview with Rebecca Dawson. And now she's joining for this episode. So we're going to kick things off. And if you want an ad-free extended version of the show, sign up on Patreon or Substack for $5 a month. And you'll get access to dozens and dozens of bonus episodes along with extended editions of each episode and an ad-free version of the show. Uh, This episode... Given it's a holiday, Halloween episode, I'm just going to put it out as a freebie. But normally, uh, moving forward, we're going to have ads on the show, unfortunately. But I got to pay bills. And you guys, uh, you know, not everybody wants to sign up. We are at about 189 supporters. So we're only 60 uh, supporters away from reaching our goal of 250 supporters so sign up now and be one of the original 250 and support your favorite podcast happy halloween be safe out there and enjoy this episode of the my family thinks of crazy podcast
ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And today I have a very special guest here with me for this very special occasion. Of course, Tara is with me. Tara. Hi, Ron. Hi, Tara. <laughs> Oh, let me turn your headphones on. We're still making adjustments here in the new studio. Can you hear us now? Is it plugged in? Well, your channel, your channel's up, so. But anyways, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast times the Wicked Planet podcast, because of course our buddy Ron from New England is here joining us on this very special occasion, the eve of Hollow, Halloween, uh, sometimes known at least where Tara and I grew up as Mischief Night. I I don't know, Ron, I think you guys probably called it something, uh, would you call it Mischief Night where you grew up the night before Halloween? No, we- no, it's just Halloween. You didn't have a night before Halloween? What was the night called when everybody caused trouble the night before Halloween? Oh, I don't I don't think we really had a name for it, but it was a big night to go out partying. Yeah. The night before Halloween and also like the night before Thanksgiving, for whatever reason, always was a good night to have an excuse to go out and raise a little hell, right? Yeah. Did you used to... Um, throw out, throw toilet paper in the trees and everything. Uh, we didn't do anything like that. We did throw, well, we did throw a lot of vegetables at place. (laughs) Vegetables. Yeah. So you're out there calling, (laughs) causing a ruckus. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, we lived next to a big farm and, and out behind our old shop, there was this great, you know, this great big field where they would grow, you know, tomatoes and zucchinis and stuff like that and we and what we would do the week leading up to it we would kind of sneak over at night like these big black op missions where we would steal a few tomatoes and we would have this big stockpile like for when halloween night came yeah yeah and 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 it, right right up the, up the street from that there was this big mobile home park which was right out behind our shop and of course we would go out and terrorize that right mm. First, we would go trick-or-treat and get all our candy, and then we would give it a couple hours, and then we would go back to the people that either were mean to us or didn't give us candy or whatever, and we would throw tomatoes at their trailers. And, of course, <laughs> when you hit a trailer that's white with a red tomato, it makes a mess. Yeah. Oh, my god. So, I guess, you know, we did we did cause a little mischief, I suppose. Yeah. Well, and I heard, I've heard from people who didn't grow up in... Natural. I've I've heard from people who haven't grown up in this particular area that it goes by different names. There's Mischief Night here is what we call it, but I, I don't know. I think in other places they have different names for it, but it's the night before Halloween for whatever reason, as Tara said. We throw toilet paper on the trees and all kinds of other stuff, and I don't know. Maybe there's a, there's a, a history behind that, but... Seems to be like a local thing because you guys had your own variation where you grew up. And, uh, but yeah, well, go ahead. Halloween is like a three day event up here. Right. That's what I mean. There's always weird stuff. It's not just, it's not just Halloween night. Right. And if Halloween falls close to a weekend, boy, oh boy. Right. It's even better. Well, so, 
And yeah, that's the weird part. I guess it's a Tuesday this year, so not exactly a weekend. But yeah, Mexico has what? Yeah, the Day of the Dead celebration. That lasts for like about, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I am guessing like a week or something. They they have the celebrations and they go to the graves and they um, they share food and leave food and you know yeah well drink the, listen to the, music have fun celebrate the day, of the, the day of the dead gee I got a ton of Mexican friends too and I've never sat down and had them explain it to me but one person tried to and what she said was. It's the time with the veil between the living and the dead opens up and your dead relatives will come out and they can hang out with you and have a meal and have a party and then they go back. Right. There's like some there's like some bridge. And the only thing I can equivalent it to is like when they talk about animals going over the rainbow bridge. Mm. It's it's kind of something I think similar to that where your your ancestors that have passed on walk over this bridge into the world of the living again. So it's it's a really cool concept, and, and of course it coincides with Halloween, so you kind of wonder if it was kind of piggyback off of Halloween or, or whatever, or it's just a coincidence because, you know, Halloween is basically, you know, the, the end of the harvest, right, at the harvest time of the year. And, and then it goes on, from there into into winter so I, I i that's why there's a lot of similarities with halloween celebrations all over the whole world mm. it's just it's called something different in other places yeah i think with the well yeah i don't know like this the seasons like how the yeah like is that that's what you were referring to too right like the mm. feel of the the change from spring and summer to like it getting very cold and you know under the ground earth graves but in between there is the fall and so it's yeah like this uh the feeling of it i guess too um probably just seems like it's the right time of year for scary stuff to happen I mean, exactly. if you could have seen, I mean, you guys saw the moon this weekend, right? It was crazy. Yeah. It's like what yeah, I would call the werewolf moon because it, you know, it was just, it was eerily warm this last weekend as Mark and I were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was 75 degrees here on Saturday and Saturday night. It was crystal clear out, even though we did have a rainstorm coming in, which it's doing all day yesterday and all day today. But Saturday night, it just had a super eerie feel to it because you look up and you see this massive, massive bright moon. Yeah. And it's warm out, so you're outside in a T-shirt, which is very unusual this time of year. And then you can hear, like, the owls out in the woods and the coyotes way out making noise, which they do every night. But it just happened to... To just give you that feeling like, okay, Halloween's here. Yeah. You know, like I say, because it's like a two or three day event here. It's not just Halloween night and, okay, it's all over. No, like the kids here have been celebrating Halloween for the last week. You know, and, and that's just how it is. I mean, you take Salem Mass, right? 
Halloween starts on October 1st. It literally goes all month. Wow. It's a month-long celebration. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was seeing decorations uh, as early as after Labor Day because, yeah, this is the, you know, fall picturesque New England and definitely a part of the the culture and the atmosphere of fall to be celebrating Halloween and putting spooky things around your yard. One thing I noticed, and I wonder if you've noticed the same thing, is the really, really tall skeleton that have pop, been popping up in people's front yards. It's like a new thing. I, I don't remember seeing these when I was growing up, but it reminds me of the Nephilim, like these tall, giant skeletons. I'm like, what is what is this supposed to be? You know, what are your thoughts on that, Ron? Yeah, exactly what you said, Mark. Is uh, I mean, to see super tall skeletons here is is not that unusual now. I mean, over the last few years, and I think it kind of coincides with more people learning things about, you know, our, our hidden past, our hidden archaeology, and the existence of giants, and then you want to bring in the Nephilim, right? Which is, uh, you know, the, the giants of biblical times, the giants of uh, the Book of Enoch and the Book of Genesis. So, yeah, it's really cool. As a matter of fact... In my town somewhere, I think somebody's got a giant uh, skeleton mm. on their front yard. Because people around here, I mean, Halloween is a big deal in New England, right? Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's like even a bigger deal, like in Mass and New Hampshire, where, you know, we have so many Massachusetts people in New Hampshire. We're all intertwined. It's like it almost should be one state, to be honest. Yeah. But, uh but yeah, no, Halloween's a big deal, and people are really go all out on decorating. Now, now we don't do a lot of decorating at my place because we're off the road. We don't get any visitors. We don't get any trick-or-treaters I or anything remember. like that. Yeah, yeah you're oh, that's set right. back yeah. in, yep. So you probably yeah. have, <laughs> I don't know, you probably have the forest spirits coming out. To... <laughs> well, I swear we have those anyway. Well, yeah, I think that's what it felt like Saturday night. I'll tell you what, (laughs) I had gone out late to have my final smoke of the night and let the dogs out. Well, it just felt weird. (laughs) I mean, I don't get, I don't get like sketched out very easy, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, you know, I'm looking up at the moon. I'm hearing coyotes way out in the woods. And I'm like, yeah. I better go inside before a werewolf jumps out at me. But <laughs> well, uh, but that's funny you said Nephilim, Mark, because I gave you I gave you a nickname. Uh kind of <laughs> and I don't know if you saw this, but uh I uh, you uh you recently had an episode with Sam, right? And and you talked about the Nephilim and you talked about Atlantis and stuff like that. But I still gotta finish listening to it, but but I had commented on the post. I said, yeah, Mark, the New England Nephilim of the North, <laughs> to coin, to coin Buckley's phrase. And I know, and I know that people have been like teasing you and calling you, you know, when they meet you in person and see He's that game, uh, 14 feet tall, yeah. like, oh, this guy, this guy must be a Nephilim. <laughs> anyway, so, so I gave you that nickname, whether you like it or not. Yep. Yep, you keep reminding me. That's fine. (laughs) I owned it. So here we are, Halloween, special occasion. And before Ron and I uh, 
participate in the tradition of sharing spooky stories. And today we're going to be sharing stories that border on the lines of uh, truth. I think most of them, at least the ones I've found, I don't know what Ron's prepared, uh, but the ones I've found are true accounts of very strange, very spooky things going on in the world, not necessarily just in October. But uh, before we get to that, Tara has this really interesting definition of Halloween that she has prepared. It comes from the Encyclopedia of the Goddess, and it's a really fascinating, or I'm sorry, the Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, even more, even more tantalizing, full of interesting facts. But <laughs> courtesy <tell> it, <laughs> of your birthday present last year. Yes, I got it. To, I got it for her birthday. Uh, and tell me, tell us, uh, please, what you would like to read to kick off this episode. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and read the definition of Halloween, um, according to this book. Um, okay, so, All Souls, or All Hallows Day, on November 1st, it says, um, was the Christian version of Samhain, the Celtic Feast of the Dead, named for the Aryan Lord of Death, Samana, the Leveler or the Grim Reaper, leader of ancestral ghosts. According to the pagan lunar calendar, festivals were celebrated on the eve rather than the day. Therefore, Halloween or All Hallows' Eve was the original festival, later displaced to the following day. The Irish used to call the holy night the, ver the Vigil of Saman, Churchmen described it as a night of magic charms and divinations, reading the future with witches' mirrors and nutshell ashes, ducking for apples and tubs of water, representing soul symbols in the cauldron of regeneration and other objectionable rites. Even today, it is said that a girl who peels an apple before a mirror on Halloween will see the image of her future husband in the glass. Christian authorities wrote on Halloween, many other superstitious ceremonies, the remains of Druidism are observed on this holiday, which will never be eradicated while the, same, while the name of Saman is permitted permitted to remain. The name of the pagan deity remains in the Bible as Samuel from the Semitic Semiel, the same underworld God. Of course, the original divinations were oracular utterances by the ancestral dead who came up from their tombs on Halloween, sometimes bringing gifts to the children of their living descendants. In Sicilian Halloween tradition, the dead relations have become the good fairies of the little ones. Similar customs are observed at Christmas. In Lithuania, the last European country to accept Christianity, the pagans celebrated their New Year feast at Halloween, sacrificing domestic animals to their gods 
Samanik, and Samana. Their prayer ran, Accept, accept our burnt sacrifice, O Samana, and kindly partake thereof. If the Lord of the underworld accepted the offering on behalf of all the dead, the spirits were satisfied and would refrain from doing harm. If not adequately propitiated, they might descend on the world as vengeful ghosts led by demons and witches or priestesses who summoned them. The witches and ghosts are still associated with Halloween together with such symbols as owls, bats, and cats. The pagan idea used to be that crucial joints between the seasons opened cracks in the fabric of fate of space, space time, allowing contact between the ghost world and the mortal one. And that is the definition to kick off story time. No, and that's very similar, right? Good job, Tara. That was actually really interesting. Uh, we touched a little bit on that uh, in our recent episode that we did, you know, about Halloween. Well, Buckley tried to tell the story, but, you know, he's not very good on detail sometimes. But when you think about it, it it's almost when it says that it opens up the fabric of space time. It's very similar to what was explained to me for the Day of the Dead in Mexico, in Mexican culture where the veil between the living and the dead is open. It's very similar, right? So uh, I found that to be super interesting. And it's funny because, you know, like how they talk about a lot of our holidays, you know, Christmas, you know, obviously it is more celebrated more with pagan rituals than it is Christian rituals, you know, because there's no proof that Jesus was born on December 25th, right? So, but I mean, it's, so it's the same thing kind of in Halloween because, you know, even though Christianity kind of in the beginning tried to outlaw Halloween, I think they actually gave up on that because in Puritan New England, Halloween and Christmas were outlawed for like the longest time and, and especially Halloween, you know, for reasons that are very obvious. Right. But uh, but the whole the whole thing with the, the spirit of the underworld and uh, coming up where they're offering sacrifices to the spirits of the underworld. You know, clearly that's all pagan, right? And like you say, uh, when we were talking before the show, you got the, like the end of the season, right? Even though, you know, if you go by the, the current calendar that we have, like our season, you know, like fall is between September 21st and December 21st, right? Where all Hallows Eve or, or Halloween is actually like almost not completely in the middle, but close to in the middle of that. Because if you go by regular cycles of the earth, I mean, this is when weather really starts changing, right? Like, like mid-October to the end of October. I mean, we just came off of three days and it was in the 70s. It was, you know, like our third installment of Indian summer in New England. And now literally overnight it goes from being 75 down into the 40s so this is a clear a clear change in weather patterns and that would make more sense that you know you said uh in some countries that they actually 
it's their celebration of the new year, right? Because the, the new year would be at the end of October, beginning of November, which coincides with harvest time. So it's all super interesting when you when you start really digging into it and looking at the Halloween uh, deeper than, you know, kids putting on costumes, going door to door, throwing eggs at your house and getting candy. Right. <laughs> so there's way there's way much more to, to Halloween than I think what people know. And but that's cool that we could talk about that. And I think that's what we're going to do a little bit tonight. Well, and I couldn't think of a better person to have on for this conversation as fellow New Englanders. And yeah, it's interesting you brought up the point that the that the government, early colonial governments and uh, state governments banned Christmas and Halloween, especially considering that the first, you know, wave of settlers and maybe even pre-Columbian settlers uh, were from Ireland, Scotland, and the Northern European countries, and they carried with them these sort of, you know, suppressed beliefs, because as the church was, you know, taking things and and taking the pagan culture out of uh, Europe, they were, you know, there are stories that some of those people left Europe and came over to America, and that's why we have uh, different Celtic and Norwegian artifacts here in New England, different stone structures that resemble, you know, what they have in Northern Europe and the UK. And yeah, it's really fascinating to, you know, to contemplate what if (laughs) these pilgrims that we're familiar with were really just like a second wave that came over here and just Christianized all the uh, Celtic and whoever else were, were here that, you know, intermixed with the Native Americans, you know, because there were plenty of stories of Native Americans that had very white skin and had concepts that were very similar to Christian concepts and had even languages that were very similar to Gaelic and other, you know, older mm-hmm. European languages. So, yeah, maybe that's why there's such a, a deep resonance with these sort of pagan things, because it's something that has real ancient roots here on the in the land. I mean, it's something that Tara and I have been looking into, you know, local history and the energy of the landscape and, you know, how we can trace the history based on what's left and what's still, you know, waiting to be found in the forest. And one of the fun, I don't know, sides of this is where these spooky, I don't know, strange kind of consciousness exposing or bending encounters or situations occur you know it's not far-fetched there there's uh even some of these supernatural paranormal instances that occur around certain megalithic structures and whatnot so uh, given that there are those here in new england who knows but uh, what do you think ron do you want me to kick this off with a a strange story or or would you would you like to to comment and, and take it away Oh, I think I would just like to kind of add, Mark, that I don't think there's any doubt that uh, other other people visited our area, like, way before the Pilgrims came, right? I mean, the Pilgrims came in 1620. They were Christian. They were Puritans. Uh, My ancestors came in 1641, uh, also Puritans, right, when they first came to uh, New England, which is, you know, modern-day Salem today. And uh, 
But I mean, there's so much, uh, there's so much information out there and a lot of things that lead that, you know, we had an early Celtic settlement here, you know, and not in, not in just in New England, but in, in the, uh, the Canadian Maritimes. Right. I mean, they're finding rune stones that, that predate the pilgrims. They're finding, uh, foundations of longhouses, which were associated with Vikings, mm. you know, and, you know, and the Vikings inhabited all of the British Isles at one time. Right. So, I mean, you know, even even the Celtic people or the Scandinavian people that came over, even from Hibernia, you know, a lot of these people, even my ancestors that were Normans, uh, were Vikings. They were seafaring people. So, you know, there's no doubt that there was civilizations here that intermingled with, had relationships with the indigenous people. And like you say, there's uh, there's accounts of fair-skinned indigenous people, right. right? So where did that come from? And not only that, there was some talk that some of the Indian tribes in our area and in Maine, which we would kind of uh, kind of equate to uh, what people today call the Abenaki and things like that had a very unique language. Like, they didn't speak the same language right. exactly like the Mohawk nations did. Right. And the Mohawks, you know, were in, in what is New York, Pennsylvania, uh, New England, and things like that. But the Abenaki, it's almost like their lineage was a little different. Right. Yes, they had some French culture. There was a fair amount of Indians that could speak French very well. You know, and of course, being in New Hampshire, we're just south of Quebec, Canada, which is the the French province of Canada. And if you ever go there, I mean, it's like going to France. <laughs> but if, if you go to Quebec City, like, you don't know you're not in Paris. <laughs> they have all the same stuff there. They got the Cathedral of the Notre Dame there. They have all these other things. So it, it, it makes sense that a lot of these uh, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, rituals and custom that these earlier people brought over, some of those may have been kind of adopted by the indigenous people. Right. Because you, you know, to a certain degree, because you hear, and this comes out a lot in some of Stephen King's writings, uh, and we're going to get into him in a little bit, but you know, like even his story of Pet Cemetery, right? Oh, yeah. How you know how you have this special graveyard where they would bury their animals, and these animals, the spirits of these animals, protected them from evil spirits. Now that is a that's a Viking thing. That's like a Norse thing, right? It could very possibly be a Celtic thing, and like what Tara said, like the the origins of Celtic, of what we uh, describe as Halloween today, right? So, if you do a lot of digging into that and start seeing the stuff that's actually right in front of your nose, you you just kind of sit back and you go, "Oh my God, this is starting to make a lot of sense." Take take America's Stonehenge down in Southern New Hampshire, that whole complex, which we need to get together and go check out with Andy sometime, get together with him and, and go up and kind of scope that out. Yeah. Uh, okay. That way predates pilgrims. Yeah. Like by, like by 
500 years or more. You know, so so explain that when you start saying, oh, the pilgrims were the first ones here, because clearly that is not, they might be the first, the first uh, group of people that came and actually stayed, but they're not the first people that came here. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's really fascinating, you know, and to consider that even the, we'll call it Druidic or the, you know, indigenous cultures of Europe resemble in some ways the indigenous cultures of North America, where they practice certain shamanic rituals and, uh, you know, honored the, the nature and the spirits of nature and even acknowledged in many different ways. Stop picking your nose with the bird feather. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> they even acknowledged uh, the presence of these other entities, you know, which is something that I think you have to dig a lot deeper to find in Christian and, and Catholic, you know, within that realm, they still acknowledge it, but it's, it's layered, right? Whereas there seems to be more of a open acknowledgement with pagan cultures or indigenous cultures of, you know, this relationship with the other beings that we, you know, encounter from time to time in this realm, which is, it's funny, we got on to talking about <clears throat> Native Americans, because my first story that I planned on sharing comes from uh, a tribe in Alaska. And it's interesting because Tara and I were sitting by the river yesterday and I was starting to think like, oh, you know, I, yeah, I was telling you about the trout I saw and we've seen some bald eagle and, you know, it's really exciting living in this new place where there's tons of wildlife. And uh, my imagination started to one wander, you know, wonder what kind of animals we might see next that I've never seen before. And I've never seen an otter in person before. So I started thinking about otters. I looked it up and it turns out otters are all over the place. I mean, if you live on the eastern half of the Mississippi in the United States, there's a good chance that you live near some otters, but they're very... You know, very elusive, and they also have a really big range. They're only out, you know, typically at day, you know, daybreak and you know sunset time. So it's you know kind of an odd thing to to run into. I don't know, Ron, if you've ever run into any otters, but I I've never seen them in the wild. And there's this whole legend of the otter men uh, that this tribe in Alaska has uh, some stories of. So we're gonna. I'm going to read this, and this comes from a really great book uh, by Nick Redfern. He is the, you know, the guy when it comes to these types of books and, you know, tons and tons of material. He's put out articles, and I'm going to link to this book in the notes so people can pick this up if they want. There's, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's tons of stories in this book. So he says, the Kushtaka or the Koshtaka as it is also known, is a monstrous, manipulative, and sometimes deadly creature that is a staple part of the folklore of two specific groups of Native Americans living predominantly in the state of Alaska, but also in other portions of the Pacific Northwest coast. Their names are the Simshan and the Tlingit. The former are known as the People of the Tides, uh, and they live along the Skeena River in British Columbia. So 
within these tribes, they have these legends. And I don't know about you, Ron, but when I think of an otter, I think of a, a cute kind of cuddly river creature, right? But keep in mind, otters are in the weasel family and weasels <laughs> all together have a nasty reputation. So otters might be on the nicer side of the weasel family, but they're, they're actually, you know, you, you do hear of people getting attacked by otters from time to time. So they're not altogether uh, friendly creatures. Although otters, I will say, play more than any other animal. Scientists, you know, who study otters, see them playing and wrestling and you know, picking up rocks and tossing them. And so they do all kinds of, yeah, they do kind of really, you know, uh, what's the word? Anthropomorphic type of, they have anthropomorphic type of qualities. So this story, who knows, maybe this is a, a, you know, some sort of half otter, half human hybrid. Otters are already, you know, sort of human like in that way. Maybe. So, uh, this, this author that Nick Redfern mentions here, his name is Dennis Waller, and he wrote a book uh, in search of the Kushtaka. So, and this this word Kushtaka means land otter man. So I'm going to jump ahead and maybe we could find a story. But it's very similar to these dog man and Bigfoot sightings that people have, except it's more, you know, associated with water, hence the... The Otterman Association, right? So, um, basically, we have the Otterman kind of in the background, right? People know about the Sasquatch, but they don't mention the Otterman much, and maybe that's because of its more sinister nature. So, allegedly, um, the otter man is associated with the cries of a baby. So people might be walking through a forest where a river is or where a river meets an ocean and they might hear a baby crying as if the baby is in distress. And, you know, that might lead somebody to go and see what's going on and maybe try to help you know, an infant, but the tribes and the people who live in this area will tell you, no, no, no. If you hear a baby crying in certain parts, you don't, don't go, don't follow up with it because it is a Kushtaka. And this is how they steal souls, allegedly. So the, they're something like a, a, a shapeshifter. And once they steal your soul, they can basically take your, your body, you know, and kind of, uh, use your use your your likeness uh, for its bidding. So here's a report of a Kushtaka encounter uh, from the 1900s, uh, from the year 1900. So this man Harry D. Culp was an adventurer, gold prospector, and someone who firmly believed that he encountered a colony of Kushtaka at Thomas Bay which is located in the southeastern part of Alaska. It is also known as the Bay of Death. As a result of a huge landfall that occurred at the bay in the middle 18th century, its far more chilling name, however, is Devil's Country, on account of the Kushtaka legends and encounters. According to Culp, as he climbed one particular ridge one day, he developed a sudden sense of being watched. As Culp quickly turned around, he was terrified to see an entire group of horrific, looking monsters carefully and 
diligently pursuing him. In an eye-opening fashion, he described them as creatures that appeared to be half-human and half-monkey. He also described them as being sexless, suggesting in all probability that he meant no genitalia was seen. Since this is not surprising at all, as Culp said that the entire pack was covered by long, thick hair, aside from those areas covered by oozing, infected sores. As the monsters moved closer and closer, howling and screaming in the process, Culp retched at the foul odor that emanated from their forms to the point where he almost passed out. Fortunately, after hurling his broken rifle at them, Culp managed to outrun his hideous pursuers, ensuring that he did not fall victim to this grisly band of hungry beasts. There's no doubt at all that the tale of Harry D. Culp has more than a few uh, Bigfoot-themed overtones attached to it. So then I think Nick here uh, kind of equates them to the Bigfoot, maybe a different species or variation of some kind, but clearly there's an aquatic sort of quality to them. This guy was near the water. He was in the Bay of Death, <laughs> you know, and these Bigfoot beings had these, you know, weird sores all over them that were oozing. So who knows what that has to do with maybe maybe it is bigfoot and they're just like leper bigfoot they have some kind of leprosy you know but i as far as something as far as i know i think colder climates are better for heat like fighting those kind of diseases right like it is isn't it more likely that you wouldn't have a disease like that in a colder climate but maybe there's maybe there's some sort of arctic disease that these things have who knows but what do you think of that story ron well, I think it's interesting because a lot of the descriptions, like the odor and their appearance, does sound very Bigfoot-esque. However, when they said they appeared to be sexless, to me, that means almost something extraterrestrial or a form of extraterrestrial hybrid. Because when you hear about Sasquatch encounters, people will come right out and say, oh, it was definitely a guy, you know, it was, or it was definitely yeah. a female because, you know, well, I could see her breasts or, or it was definitely a male because I could see he had a massive erection, you know, because the Bigfoot was excited, you know, <laughs> I mean, not to sound gross. I'm just saying, uh, Tara's getting quite a kick out of that. So, but what I'm saying here is, the odor thing makes sense. Now, if they were oozing, it had sores, well, that would give off quite a stench, right? And you don't know, was there some type of sickness that came out of the permafrost during a thawing period? Because we, we've been hearing lots of stories in the last 10 years where, you know, these the climate change people are concerned that up in areas like Alaska or Siberia, where they have permafrost, in this permafrost, there's viruses that have been dormant for literally tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, right? And when these viruses come out, they are no longer dormant, and the body has never, you know, humans, animals, what have you, same thing could go for extraterrestrials. That was the whole premise of War of the Worlds. That's wow. how they killed off the aliens 
because they gave the aliens a virus or the aliens caught a virus that they couldn't fight off, right? And that's also another reason why they don't want us uh, astronauts bringing back samples from other places or asteroids because there might be some form of virus in there that humans have never been exposed to, therefore cannot fight it off. Wow. So who's to say that whatever these uh, creatures are, that they were infected in somehow or some way by some form of dormant virus that was bought out and came into play. And who knows, this could have made them, because it's almost sounding like it's making them act how we would uh, kind of equivalent it to how zombies act, right? Right. Right. Aggressive uh, stores just, you know, chasing you down things like that so it's all very interesting and and i'll tell you what nick redfern is an amazing researcher well and he he really he really digs deep on a lot of this stuff now i have heard of otter people before i have heard of that uh but never like like never that story well what did you call them what was the name of them Let's let's fill Thomas in on what we just read. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the show. Hey, Par- Paranoid yeah, America. I heard Otter Thomas. people. I'm already in. Where are we at? I love it. And judging by the show you were just on, I guess you're jumping right in, nice and warmed up and hot, because you're on the Union of the Unwanted, talking about paranormal stuff. It's Halloween. Welcome to the show, brother. And uh, yeah, Ron, I really, I'm really glad you brought that up. They, they were called Kushtaka, the Otter People, Kushtaka. but this, that was the, that's the name that Tlingit people who live in Alaska gave them. But I, it's so fascinating to think that as the ice is melting, there could be dormant viruses that are being unleashed. And if there are Sasquatch in that area, they get exposed to this. They start getting these oozing sores. And then, you know, this guy comes along and sees them. He gets chased by them and maybe it makes them act like zombies. I mean, that's just astounding. And uh, I mean, even like, Tara brought up with the Native Americans being exposed to all sorts of viruses from the Europeans. Maybe the same thing because Alaska wasn't really like settled up until, you know, really recently when probably around the time this story took place in the, you know, early 1900s, there was still, you know, places that were, you know, never, you know, hadn't been reached before that were being explored. So who knows? Maybe, maybe these Sasquatch had like some kind of leprosy. I mean, Nick seems to think that they resemble Sasquatch more than anything else, but you said you've heard of otter people before, Ron. Where I've heard stories about otter people for sure from yeah. from New yeah. England. But, no, 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 okay. no. From from Alaska, right. uh, northern Canada, things like that. But but what could be could be a simple case of misidentification, because if you have these people that are have no idea what a Sasquatch is, right, or a Yeti or anything like that. I mean. I mean, these people have been in this same region for thousands of years. Like, they they didn't go to Tibet. They didn't go to, you know, the Pacific Northwest or anything like that. They might not have heard any tales of Sasquatch, but but they, they're used to seeing otters, right? So, so somebody could have just come and said, oh, I don't know what that is. Oh, man, it looks like an otter. Must be an otter person. Right. You know, it could have been just as simple as that. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, we have otters in my town. Well, that, we have a little, uh, like thing. a little flume up off a back road out behind my house. And when you get a lot of water, it's like a little waterfall. And the otters will actually, you can see them playing in there. They do like a, this water slide thing yeah, where they get up top and then they slide down the waterfall and then they run back up and they just keep doing it. Oh, yeah. It's, that's, it's like they're playing. That's so. one of their key um, behaviors when it's winter time. They can get around faster by sliding. So they like when mm-hmm. the ground's frozen over with snow, they slide here and there. I mean, I was trying to figure out if they hibernate or not, but nope, they love the winter. And oh, yeah, it's weird, though. Yeah, they slide on their bellies. Now, what's weird about it that diverges from the Sasquatch encounters is the whole crying baby sound. And I don't, I don't oh, know what kind of vocalizations otters make, but maybe that's where the the name comes from in a way too, because people are drawn to a river where they hear a baby crying, and then they have this, you know, deadly potentially experience with this otter person that according to the natives can steal your soul and then shapeshift as you once it has your soul. Okay. I have something I wanted to add to that. I'm glad you reminded me. Okay. So, so the only sound I've ever heard an otter make is is like a chattering sound. Uh, And it's very similar to the sound that woodchucks will make when they get excited or they're defending their den. They chatter. They kind of, they kind of, uh, because, you know, woodchucks got those big buck teeth. But, uh, but anyways, I, I don't know. Maybe otters cry, but what, what I found very interesting is the crying baby thing is a tale that comes out of the Appalachians. And basically, a lot of people have reported it along the Appalachian Trail, mm. which is something else I recently just touched on very quickly. Where people hike in the Appalachian Trail, and as you know, Appalachian Trail goes right up through New England, right through New Hampshire, right up into Maine, right? Is if you if you're hiking the Appalachian Trail or if you're in the Appalachian Mountains and you hear a baby crying, you're supposed to tell yourself, No, you didn't. And just keep going and ignore it. Because if you hear a baby crying, it's trying to lure you in, and it sounds a lot like the M.O. of what these otter people do. Because they know that you're going to react to a sound of a baby crying. You're going to, it's a natural instinct to want to help, you know, somebody that's either yelling for help or a baby crying, right? And you would go search that out to see, you know, what's going on and see if you could save or help out this baby or whatever it is. So then they get you lorded to the woods. And then you brought up the shape shifting aspect, which is something else that you hear a lot about tales from the Appalachian trail. It's just a lot of similarities there. Like for sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things when we moved into our farmhouse, when I was a kid, one of the things that the people that lived there said is, on occasion, you will hear babies crying, a baby crying. I, I remember that like it was yesterday because I was always sketched out waiting to hear a baby cry. I never, ever heard a baby cry. But two two out of the five tenants that lived in our place before they moved told us that we will hear babies crying. And that was one of the haunting. I, nev- I never did that. 
Wow. But but it seems it seems like the perfect way to lure you in if they want to yeah. match your soul. Yeah. Yeah. Weird stuff. So Thomas, I think you get the gist of what we're doing here. We're sharing stories. Tara gave us a, a really great definition of Halloween, a little background of, of where the the history of Halloween sort of began. And uh, in the tradition, the spirit of Halloween, we're, we're sharing some stories. But, uh, Ron, you have some prepared. Do you want to tell us what you maybe one of your stories that you got prepared? Well, it's not really like I have it super prepared, but that's fine. It's something that's that's super. It's super cool to kind of piggyback off my little like impromptu Halloween episode we did the other night. And I did tell the listeners on Wicked Planet that this is not the only Halloween info or show you're going to get between now and Halloween. During that episode, I, I went into analyzing the movie The Shining a little bit. And and every time I watch The Shining, I always it always brings me back to my stay at the Mount Washington Hotel up in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Which if you uh I actually posted a picture of it on my Wicked Planet podcast page on Instagram. But the the Mount Washington Hotel is absolutely massive. It makes it makes the Overlook Hotel in the movie The Shining look like a shed. That's how big the Mount Washington Hotel is, right? And even though we know that uh, the Overlook Hotel was modeled after the Stanley Hotel from Estes Park in, Cal- in uh, Colorado, right? Where Stephen King, how the story goes... He stayed there. Him and his wife stayed there. And this is where he got the idea for the book, The Shining. So I was looking into the Mount Washington Hotel. And I, and because I always heard that it was haunted, right? Now I stayed, I stayed at the Mount Washington for my honeymoon on my first marriage. So that's, that's the one place I wanted to go because, you know, when you get married the first time, what are you always thinking, right? Like, like I don't know, Mark, you've never been married. I don't know if Thomas has ever been married. But when I got married, it was, you know, something that I, I said I would never do. And I'm like, well, I got married. So I'm going to stay at the Mount Washington Hotel for my honeymoon, right? And let me tell you what, this place is absolutely beautiful, right? Uh, just a little quick background, but. The Mount Washington Hotel was was owned. He didn't obviously do the building, but by a gentleman called John Stickney, who was from a native of Parker, New Hampshire, which is our capital city. And he became a, a very wealthy person, like even before he was 30 years old. So him and his partner was going up north and they were buying up these big resort hotels because in northern New Hampshire, you had resort hotels literally everywhere. Right. And we've lost them all over the over the uh, you know, over the times through fires, decay, you know, just the, the maintenance, you know, they're big white elephants. People can't afford them. Not enough people are staying in them to, you know, give them the revenue to be able to afford to do the maintenance, and do the upkeep. So all the, so consequently, all these hotels kind of went away. Right. Now, there's only like two or three what we call grand hotels left in 
New Hampshire, and Mount Washington is the granddaddy of them all, right? So this Stickney guy had this hotel built up in Bretton Woods, which is right at the base of Mount Washington, right? Hence the name Mount Washington Hotel. And back in, I want to say they started construction in 1900 or 1901. Like it took a couple of years for this place to build because they opened the doors in 1902, right? Cost him, I want to say just under $2 million of 1900 money, which the equivalent to $2 million then is about between 55 and 60 million today, right? And of course, the Mount Washington Hotel has gone through massive renovations. It's been enlarged, it's been added on to, and everything since then. But, but sadly enough, the guy that had it built, he ended up having a heart attack about a year after they opened. So he spent all this money and he built this massive, like, biggest, grandest hotel in New Hampshire. Then a year later, he drops dead, right? Well, he left everything to his widow. And she kept the hotel going. Now, back in the day, now, you know, you're talking even before there was, like, travel by car. You know, 1902, early 1900s, like this before the Model T even came into an existence. So people would travel from the city, like New York City, Providence, probably Hartford, and all these other wealthy places, and they would they would take however long it took, probably by train or by horse and carriage, and they would go to this hotel. And this is where they would spend the summer. Like people would go, the people with money would go to these big resort hotels and just spend the whole summer there. Right now, what I found interesting about the Mount Washington hotel is like in Stephen King's story, the shining, the Mount Washington shut down in the fall, like right around this time of year, like right after Halloween and stayed closed until end of April, beginning of May. Now, the Mount Washington Hotel was not even uh, used in the winter. I think the first time was like in 2000, or like 1999 or 2000 was the first time it was, it was ever made so it could be open year-round, right? I mean, because the skiing up there is, is that's where everybody goes skiing, right? So his widow continued to live at the hotel in the summers. Now, in the winter, in, in uh, like spring, uh, excuse me, uh, fall, winter, spring, she lived in Providence, Rhode Island. But every summer she went to her place, because she owned the place, she went to the Mount Washington Hotel. Well, in this hotel, her and her husband had their own private suite and it was room 314 right which is another parallel to the shining right because this is where it gets interesting this was her private room right she was the only one that stayed in this room for the whole summer and 
after he died, again, she continued to stay there. So this was her room, right? And when I went there for my honeymoon, the room that I was in, and I'm working off a of memory, had to be very close to room 314. Because I remember I could look out my window and see the whole front, the whole front and where the people drove in and everything like that. The 314 was located there too. We selected this room because it had an outside balcony where she could go out and look and watch the people coming and going. And, and this lady was very, uh, what do you want to say? She had to be the top dog, right? So one of the stories is, is, is she would actually look out this balcony and watch the people coming in. And if she saw a woman coming in that was dressed better than her, well, she would immediately go in and, and change so that she would be the best dressed woman in the whole hotel. Right. And so her presence was at this hotel for, uh, for like 10 years after her husband had passed away. Well, in the meantime, he meets this prince from France. And they hit it right off. They end up getting married. So she leaves New England and she moves to France. Well, the bed that she had in Rim 314, she had it taken down and shipped to France. And whenever she came back to the Mount Washington Hotel, because even though she was married to this French prince, which now makes her a princess, he still would come back to the Mount Washington and spend her summers there. And she would have that bed transported back and forth from New Hampshire to France every year, right? So, so you know, it's just, it's a really crazy story, but 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 it has it has significance. That bed that she had transported back and forth is the bed that's still in that room to this day. So, so if you if you book room three fourteen, and I guess it's quite a, a waiting period to get this room, you would actually be sleeping in the princess's bed, and that's why now they call it the princess suite, right? But what happens is now this room is haunted. And unlike room 237 in The Shining, you know, where they tell people, don't go into that room. We don't let anybody use that room because the room is, you know, sketchy, something going on there. But if you remember in The Shining, there's a woman that comes up out of the tub, right? She comes up out of the tub and she walks over towards... Uh, Jack Torrance, and he starts making out with her, and he looks at a reflection in the mirror, and, and her skin just rotting off of her in the back, right? So it's just as interesting that Stephen King uses this one particular room in his story, and it's almost it's almost very similar to the story of room 314 at the Mount Washington Hotel. Now, there's a lot of theories that Stephen King used the Mount Washington Hotel as his base for the story The Shining, although Stephen King denies that. Hmm. He denies it, and he says, no, the Stanley Hotel was the inspiration for 
the story of The Shining, not Mount Washington Hotel, because they actually, a lot of people interviewed him and asked him that, because uh, the significance of uh, Mount Washington Hotel is that this is where, after World War II, they set up the Bretton Woods Conference, where they actually came up and uh, started the World Bank in the International Monetary Fund. So it was called the Bretton Woods Accords. And in that room that they had the meetings and they signed all these treaties and all these documents to set up the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, was called the Gold Room. And in the movie The Shining, the ballroom where Jack goes in and starts losing his mind, he goes up to the bar and all of a sudden a bartender appears, right? Mm -hmm. That was called the gold room. Mm. So I thought if he didn't use the Mount Washington hotel as a backdrop or the ideal or inspiration for the shining, it's, it's really a huge coincidence, Mm. right? right? Because maybe he stayed at the Mount Washington hotel at one time and kind of put these ideas in his head now and then he goes and stays at the stanley and then it was probably a an amalgamation of all of these places he stayed together and this is where he came up with the idea for the overlook hotel yeah now what about the film did did they use either hotel for the film no the the, the hotel that they used in the movie was actually based off of a hotel in oregon oh, okay and and, and that hotel is there to this day. And if you see pictures of this hotel, it looks like the Overlook Hotel. But when Stephen King filmed that, they filmed it in England. And what they did was they made a complete replica of this hotel in Oregon, which he named the Overlook. Built it on a built it like in uh, in England, and that's and that's where you know they just built the facade, right? right. Because the actual hotel in Oregon does not have a, a hedge maze or well, or anything like that. And the reason I bring the film part up is because, you know, Stanley Kubrick has all these sort of theories about him. And, you know, some of them have been really well pointed out. You know, I don't remember exactly who. It was either Jason Horsley or Jay Widener. I don't remember, but... Uh, there's this whole theory about, you know, how there's this symbolism about the fake moon landing in that oh, film. Yeah. And yeah, I just wonder if Stephen King in a similar stroke of lacing fiction with truth included that Brentwood conference in there as well. Cause I mean, inextricably both concepts are conspiratorial. So who knows? Maybe Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick were working together on that one. I, I feel like well, it's wrong that, to say him in the same sentence, though. Why is that? Uh, Stanley Kubrick and uh, Stephen King. Well, one of the examples that uh, Stephen King didn't really appreciate, from what I understand, Stanley Kubrick's yeah. retelling of some of these fine little details that he points out. Um, but I think... Personally, I think that Stephen King has his own insider info. I do think that Stanley Kubrick was re- like trying to reveal some of this really deep 
arcane information, but I think he was way, way too many levels deep for a lot of people. Mm. Stephen King's a little bit more superficial with it, but an example is that the sequel to The Shining is what Dr. Sleep, right? And that's where mm-hmm. they they basically inhale this steam that they call it. And steam is really just like you scare a little kid and you inhale the steam out of them. Sounds like some familiar conspiracy theories today. And if you go and read it, it talks about the fear of children salting their meat um, and, and like being able to harvest this and get power from it. He's got this reoccurring theme that he just keeps writing about over and over and over and over again. Uh, Stephen King does. Yeah. And I feel like it's a little heavy handed, but then Stanley Kubrick can do the same thing, but make it so damn subtle. Right. Huh? Yeah. So, so, so Stephen King was 100% not happy with how Kubrick depicted the book in the movie. Yeah. So I, I, the only thing I could think of that, that Stanley Kubrick was hired by the studio, not by Stephen King. They probably bought the rights to the book to option it for a movie. And once Stephen King's paid, he's out of the picture. He has nothing to say about it. Oh. Now, uh, but, but there are some things. Let me just real quick, Mark. In The Shining, you will see one scene where it shows little Danny Torrance, and he's wearing a sweater, and on the sweater, it shows a spaceship that says Apollo 11 on it. So that right there, Thomas, is is one of the things you're kind of referring to. And Apollo the God was known as the Shining One. There you go. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. So, So not only that, but... A lot of things were changed. Now, I don't know if you've read the book, but the, the book, The Shining, is totally different than the movie, The Shining, especially the ending, right? And the other things, like in The Shining, it's room 237 you want to stay out of, when in actuality, in the book, it was room 217. Mm. But, but the Stanley Hotel has a room 217, and they told Kubrick, look, we would prefer you not to use this because now we're going to have all kinds of people wanting to rent this particular. What a horrible room. problem for a hotel to have, right? I know, right? But, but what I'm, here. What but what I'm saying is, is <laughs> they didn't want it to become a problem, Thomas. So that's why. But room 237 sounds better anyway, right? <laughs> but, but getting back to the Mount Washington Hotel and its hauntings, now this. Princess, Princess, I want to say her name was, I, I could look it up. I think it was Princess Caroline. Uh, her, it's rumored that she, yeah, Princess Caroline, Princess Caroline, uh, her name was Caroline Stickney, obviously, when she was married. Uh, but when she was married to the, the prince, obviously, it makes her a princess, right? There's still reports to this day of people seeing a shadowy figure of her rest to the nines coming down the grand staircase. And I said, tell you what, this staircase is, if you ever get a chance to go to this hotel, you guys are going to go and check it out. It is like a scene out of the shining, like without a doubt. Right. And they also see pictures of her, uh, uh, not pictures of her, but they see images of her looking out the window of her balcony looking down on the parking lot and looking down on the front and watching the people still right out of the window of room 314. 
And and what's really cool was one day the the staff of the Mount Washington Hotel, they shut the hotel down for the day and they wanted to get a group photo out front of all the employees of the hotel. So all the employees were out on the front lawn with the hotel in the background and they took a picture. Now, I don't know if somebody did this. They swear to God that they didn't. But up in the window in room 314, you could see you could see a lady standing there looking out the window in this picture. Now, this picture was taken way before CGI, way before Photoshop and all that. And they discovered that as soon as they developed that picture, somebody said, what is that? Hmm. And that's what's really freaky. Now, there's a now I'll tell you about one more haunting, and then we can move on to the next thing. Now, in 1997, there was uh, a housekeeper, and it was her floor, her and her, her and one other person. Uh, that was their floor to get the rooms cleaned. Right now, a couple that had just got married, and it was their honeymoon. They wanted to rent room 314. Now, they didn't know the significance of this room. They didn't know that it was the owner's wife's room or that that it was the owner's private suite. But it's an actual suite. So it's not just a room with a bathroom. Like like when I stayed at Mount Washington, it was a, a really nice room. But it wasn't very big. It was just a room and a bathroom. But this room was a suite. So it had a living room. It had dressing room had a huge bathroom, et cetera, et cetera, right? But they wanted to they wanted this room for the night for their honeymoon or for the weekend. So they told these chambermaids, go and get that room all ready. Make sure you change everything. Make it real nice. We got first time visitors coming to the hotel. So the girl's like, okay, so she goes up to clean the room. Now she opens up the door to the room as she turns the light on. And she sees a little girl sleeping in the bed. She's like, oh, man, turns the light off because she didn't want to disturb the little girl. Because even though she knew there was not supposed to be anybody in this room, she saw a little girl sleeping in the bed. So she quietly closed the door to not disturb her. And as she went down and she ran into her boss and her boss was like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be cleaning that room. If he says, well, I can't. There's a little girl sleeping in there right now. And she says, that's impossible. There's, there's nobody's, nobody's had that room. The last people checked out like a day or so ago. They didn't have any children. And the people that are coming in, they're not registering any children. And they're newlyweds. So let's go see what you're talking about. So they go back to the room. They open up the door. And they didn't turn the lights on because they didn't want to, you know, disturb the, the little girl sleeping. So they just had the light of the hallway shining into the suite. And they look, they look over on the bed and there's a woman sitting on the edge of the bed, dressed in a white gown, long black hair, just looking at them with this like really evil grin. And they're like, what the F is that? They turn right around, shut the door, walk away, and they go in to get somebody else. And this, and this other person's like, no, come on, you're, you're, you're seeing things or whatever. Let's go. 
They march right back to the rub light. I'm talking less than two minutes later. Open up the door, turn on the light. Nothing is disturbed in the room. The bed was perfectly made. Nobody was laying in the bed. Nobody was sitting on the bed. Nobody was in there. So that would have been enough to freak people out. But it still doesn't stop people from requesting room 314 to stay in at the Mount Washington Hotel. And I just think that's a really, really cool story. Uh, I mean, when I when I went there, I was just in awe. I mean, I've been in some nice hotels, but never in a grand hotel that looks like you just stepped in and went back 100 years in time. I mean, it's completely amazing. Yeah. And I still say, even though Stephen King says no, that he took some cues from the Mount Washington Hotel and used them in the story of The Shining. Now, if if Stephen King didn't, who's to say Stanley Kubrick didn't? Who's to say Stanley Kubrick never stayed at the Mount Washington Hotel? Good point. That's So that's another angle, too. I find it so odd that little... both of them have the initials SK and... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Gematria says the S is 19 and K is 11. 9-11, boom. We found it, folks. Hey, Thomas. We're done here. I just want to tell Thomas something about Stephen King. All of his stories are intertwined. Everything from It to Dark Tower like you got these other stories called Hearts in Atlantis. You got stories like From a Buick Eight. We just watched Salem, Salem's Lot, Rose Chapel Wait. All these stories are intertwined. They share characters, and they're almost descended. All these stories are descended from each other. That's how Stephen King's brain works. I'm sorry, Tara. What was you saying? We just watched Rose Red. Not that long ago. Yeah, it was oh, creepy. that's a good one too. We didn't. I don't think we finished it because I fell asleep, or maybe she finished it and I fell asleep. But not that it wasn't good. I was just yeah, tired. Yeah, that was a, another haunted big house that tried to eat people. Well, and that's. I'm glad we're here. And Thomas, I want to give you an opportunity to chime in if you have a story prepared. But my next story that I've prepared deals with uh, potentially inanimate or non-moving, seemingly non-moving objects eating uh, living things. So, uh, yeah, the, maybe a house or a tree or a rock even uh, could could eat a person or harm them in, in some way as if it was a, a oh, entity like itself. Souls. Yeah, snatching souls, maybe. Well, it's like what the Otter Man did, but Thomas, what what's going on? How, you haven't chimed in yet. I think it's interesting that there's so many ghosts that haunt hotels, and I guess if you could choose, or if you knew you had to be a ghost, I feel like I'd probably pick like a nice swanky hotel too. Uh, and a lot of people that get into ghost hunting and wanting to do ghost stuff. I guess since there's not a lot of abandoned hospitals that you're allowed to go and stay in overnight easily. So there's a lot of haunted places that happen to be bed and breakfast and hotels and stuff. I remember when I was in San Antonio, when I was in the air force 
And that's supposed to be one of the haunted, most haunted towns in America because of how many people had just died there, uh, specifically the Alamo. And there's a hotel that's that's right down the street from the Alamo called the Emily Morgan Hotel. And uh, I stayed there in one of the haunted rooms. I've gone to uh, Jekyll Island in Georgia, and I've stayed in some of the the quote-unquote haunted you know areas in that one too. None of them really ever gave me that weird, spooky feeling that most people report, but I did get it from two places. One was in Jekyll Island. Um, at the far end of the island, they've got all these old, I'm not going to say it's like a plantation, but it's like a very old structure, and not too far from there is where they had a bunch of sort of slave ships that would end up landing and this is after it was made illegal like it like you weren't allowed to have these ships in but they would keep smuggling them in and when you consider the juxtaposition of the abject um you know like destitution of these slave ships that are coming in the Jekyll Island meanwhile you've got like the richest people on the planet that are building houses on top of actual Indian burial mounds like one of the houses called Indian Mound, um, I believe that's the name of the house, and I, I think it was a Rockefeller. I think it was real, William Rockefeller's house was built on Indian Mound, and that's also supposed to be haunted. Um, but the the most haunted place is really at the edge of this island where those ships would come, and it's like this weird feeling. And I'm the farthest thing from a woo woo person at all, but like just the way that the hair stands up, and there is one other place that I got the same feeling, and is the creepiest feeling ever is these haunted train tracks also in san antonio and i think i mentioned this one to sam before this is this is my go-to but there was a bus that apparently broke down on the tracks i want to say it was in like the 60s I'm, I'm making a number up it was 60s or 70s and the bus stalls out gets hit by a train and about 30 kids die on this train so it turns into this big story um, they end up naming all the streets in the adjacent area, like little Sally street and Jimmy street and Shane street, which itself is creepy. The first time I ended up driving there, you're like, Oh, would take left on little Johnny Avenue and take a right on, you know, little Sally street. It's really weird knowing that these are streets that were perhaps named after all these dead. Anyways, people would line up on a Friday night. This is what they would do for fun. And they would put their car in neutral and the idea was that if you put baby powder on the back of the car and put it in neutral, the car would get pushed onto the tracks by these ghost children that are kind of trying to, like, make you relive what tragedy they went through to the point where the car would move. People would get out and look and then swear that they saw little handprints, you know, on the back of the car and the baby powder. That was that was this thing. But. It was so surreal driving up here and just seeing a line of cars like like it was a Whataburger drive through. But it was just everyone wanted to see these little ghost children push their car. Um, and and I guess I got such a weird, freaky feeling from that. People were out there taking pictures of orbs, like every kind of paranormal research you could imagine. They would kind of congregate in this one area. Uh, and I guess the, the cherry on top of that isn't a paranormal one, but. We came back from one of those those trips out there with the baby powder on the car. And since I was in the military, uh, my friend drove his car onto base and parked it. And the next day they shut the base down because it was like soon after 9-11. And somebody thought the baby powder on the back of the car might have been anthrax. So the whole freaking side of the base got shut down. No one was allowed out of their rooms until they 
found out it was just talcum powder. Wow. But yeah, that 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 was my and honestly, that is like the creepiest place on the planet that I've been to date so far is a stupid train tracks. <laughs> well, train tracks, that's not insignificant. Train tracks are made of iron and uh that comes up in the story that I have prepared next, but yeah, definitely. Iron does iron play into it? Oh yeah, well uh, according to you know, a bunch of different witchcraft and folklore traditions. You use, well, yeah, you use iron to ward off spirits of certain, you know, in certain entities. If they're inhabiting something, you could use iron in certain ways to ward them off or keep them out. Uh, horseshoes, which were made from iron, surely. Uh, you know, horseshoes have a sort of, uh, you know, superstition attached to them. People would put them above their their doors, you know, similar to how people put a cross over their door, you know. Uh, so, yeah, iron definitely has, you know, and it's magnetic, right? So maybe that's an, a hint or an indication as to what's really going on. But, yeah, I love that. The Well, it's really tragic, but it is kind of interesting that now there's a hot spot so i guess the kids are at least being remembered uh who knows maybe maybe there's I always wonder is that like mocking them like would that would that piss you off if well, someone was going and turning it into like a party trick based on what i was talking to or speaking about today with a guest dr lawrence edwards he uh is experienced in jungian archetypes and kundalini and does all sorts of different work with people and he told me a story of this apparition that a woman was seeing when she opened a, a closet or she opened like a cabinet this like spooky gross face would fly towards her and she told him about it and then he started thinking about it and meditating on it and he saw the face and at first it flew by him and then when he saw it a second time uh, he looked at it and he like loved it. Like he basically just like reached out with his mind and touched it like lovingly and it like vaporized and she never saw it again. So maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe because people go to these places and they're scared and they, they act in this frightened way, you know, they're not giving the uh, passed on spirits what they need to move on, which is like compassion and, and understanding. Hence why, you know, people go to graves and have loving thoughts and, you know, prayers and things like that. Maybe there's some truth to that, that we need to like, uh, love these things, you know, love and light. Love yeah, does this mean that like the Patrick Swayze ghost approach is better than like the Peter Venkman approach with the proton pack? Exactly. Like don't, really you just caress the ghost? And yes. It away? Don't shoot the ghosts with plasma. <laughs> love them with a dance with them. Put on romantic music and, and hang out with them. Ron, what do you think hang out about with Whoopi Goldberg from your haunted bar room over there? I think Ron, I think Ron's turned to stone. Did you hear us, Ron? Yeah, no, well, I'm here. Oh, was I, I froze up? Uh, no, well, no, I asked you what you thought of that. Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah, you know, that's kind of bizarre. You know, the thing is with steel, like, like, I just want to tell everybody about the horseshoe thing. Mm. Like, uh, like you say, because that's a big thing up here, right? Like a lot of people put the horseshoe 
in a barn door or a shed door or whatever, it's always important to make sure that the horseshoe is pointed so that the the closed part is where all your luck, your luck, because a horseshoe is supposed to bring your luck, right? So you got to make sure that when you hang the horseshoe, it's not upside down because they say that that's bad luck because all your luck falls out of the horseshoe. So it has to be, it has to be looped so that the ends are facing up, not facing down. Uh. Do you think that luck is a finite sword? Like, yes. I'm just thinking this is, the, this is my, my wacky mind. But like, if I live in a small town and everyone's got their horseshoes upright and I sneak out in the middle of the night and I turn them all upside down. Does that mean like I get more luck in the morning because like, they got know, less? Thomas. That's, that's a good question. I would say that if you had somebody you had a beef with and you went and you turned their horseshoe upside down, that could be have an interesting result. I, dude, I'm superstitious like that, like big time. Can I take uh, your and, and, horseshoe? And like, as long as I don't like tip it over and spill out the luck, does that become like my luck? Yeah, yeah good, good question. That would be a great story. The guy that goes around and steals people, stealing, stealing everyone's horseshoes because it's lucky. Oh my gosh, yeah. I think that would. Yeah, be... you know, the the story about the little kids on the train tracks, like that's super. That is super creepy. And you know what? If I was a ghost. Uh, of one of those little kids, and I'm thinking, and I'm figuring out that, ah, these guys are just, like you say, Thomas, they're just mocking us, right? And they're like, ah, well, we'll show them, you know, we'll we'll leave their car, we'll throw them on the train tracks. Well, and you know that that would be that would be my reaction if I was a ghost. I'd like, oh, so you just want us to push your car on the train tracks to to prove our existence? Like we don't have to let you know for sure that we exist but but i uh, but i think you know and uh and before we run out of time i got something i just want to share with you guys but and it has to do with the little kids but i, I you know i think i think when little children are killed or younger adults are killed they have a tendency to want to stay right where they got killed Mm. This kind of a theory that I've had right along, right? Because because you start you you see more or you hear more stories about ghost children than you do older people. At least I do. Right. Right. Like like the nine or ten year old little kid that's on our property that that we were told we will see, and I've seen him, and how he either got sick and passed away. Or he was tragically killed in some freak accident on the farm. But I have a really interesting thing. I don't want to get into it too deep because the investigation is just starting. Okay. But this story, the reason why I'm so hot on this story is because I, to this day, am friends with two of the families that were involved. Okay. Well, and, uh, and and I didn't know if Thomas had anything he wanted to uh, add before before I get into the story. No, I'm ready. Thomas, I just want to say the beard is looking awesome. 
I can't take credit. It just does its own thing, man. I don't. Well, I don't put any it seems a lot it. longer. It's a lot longer than the last time I saw you, <laughs> which was quite a while ago, actually. <laughs> but uh, but you guys want to hear something really freaky, and, and I don't want to get too deep into it because I still need to clear it. Right, this is an ongoing mind. investigation. We we can't reveal. All yeah, the I was going to say, Ron. What, what, you have a invest, a, a ghost child, and you've started. never told us about it. Just just started this investigation like a couple of days ago. Oh, and it's funny how I got wind of this, right? So I don't know how much time we have. So I'll, I'll we have I'll plenty of time. The, I got another story queued notes. up that I I I'm dying to tell you about. But I have t- we have plenty of time for this one. Tell us, right? Oh, okay. Okay, so, you know, anybody that listens to Wicked Planet or whatever knows that I'm actually in the automotive industry, right? I own a garage. It's a haunted and garage. On, and at this garage, we do state safety inspections, right? So, we started doing some inspections for this gentleman that ended up purchasing a house from one of, uh, a house that one of my best friends actually owned at one time. So we got to talk and he go, I go, Oh, I know that house. I spent all kinds of time in that house. He goes, Oh, really? That's cool. He says, yeah. So you were friends with so-and-so the past owner. I said, yeah, we were best friends since fifth grade. So we were talking about the house the kind of some of the weird stuff that happened there. So long story short, he says, Oh, I got a friend of mine. He's a contractor and he lives in this town and he's looking for somebody to take care of his vehicles for him. I said, no problem. Have him give me a call. If you recommend him, then you know, because we don't take a lot of new customers because we're so busy. Right. So anyway, so this guy comes up and he brings up a couple of his rigs. We check them out for inspection. They're all good. And uh, so he goes, oh, I got this. Uh, I got my uh, Ford Super Duty I need to bring up next, right? I said, okay, so, uh, you know, bring it up tomorrow, whatever. So he pulls in the yard in it, and I'm like, hey, I know that truck. It was a very unique looking truck, right? I said, I know that truck. I said, you live down in so-and-so's old house, don't you? He goes, yeah, I do. How did you know that? I said, because I've seen that truck in that yard. I says, I says, I'm very familiar with your old house. I was very close with the family that lived there. And he goes, oh, really? I says, yeah, let me, let me ask you a question. Have you seen any ghosts there? You know, because I knew that there was a, the, the people that owned the house, I was actually friends of his kids. And, uh, I said, yeah, there was a guy that had passed away in that house. I said he was very sick. And the people that owned the house, you know, I, I, I don't want to say their names, but the people that, you know, I knew that built that house, they let him stay with them because he basically didn't have any family, nowhere to go. And he passed away in that house. Now, now before I even got to that part to tell him that, and I asked him, I said, so have you seen any of the ghosts? And he goes, oh, you mean the little girl? Not what I was thinking about. So when he said, oh, you mean the little girl? I'm just looking at him and I'm like, dude, are you serious? I said, did you see the ghost of a little girl there? He goes, my son has seen it numerous times. And I'm like, holy crapola. 
I said, you got a few minutes? Let me run a story by you. He goes, he goes, yeah, now I got to hear the story. I said, okay, so the ghost that I was referring to was not the little girl. Well, let me tell you a little story about the little girl. And he goes, what do you mean? I says, you told me that you saw a little girl. I was referring to another person. He says, so my house has more than one ghost? I'm like, potentially, yeah. He goes, oh, great. But this guy's lived in this house for like 20-something years. He's seen and heard a few things, didn't pay any attention to it. But his son is, I don't want to say he's autistic, but he has like ADHD and some things like that. It could be so close to being on the spectrum of autism. Just really like a good kid keeps to himself, but he sees things. And he saw this little girl. And I said, okay. There was a little girl that got killed on that piece of property. I said, and I remember it because I was friends with her whole family. And her little brother was one of my best friends growing up. And he's still my friend to this day. I just talked to him about a month ago on the phone. He lives in Colorado. And he just looks at me. He goes, are you serious? I said, dude, you're the one that told me there was a ghost of a little girl there. Now I'm going to tell you the story of why you have a ghost of a little girl there. And then I told him the story. He's been freaking freaked out ever since. So I've been slowly... Now, he has invited me to come down to the house and talk to him and his wife about it. He doesn't know if his son is willing to talk about it, but I'm hoping that I can ease his son into it so I can get a little bit more details from his son. Like, what did this little girl look like? What color is her hair? What was she wearing? And what time of year did you see her? Because I'm telling you right now, this could be the real deal. If if it comes out in this investigation, if it comes out to be what I think it is, it's mm. going to really blow some minds. It's going to blow my mind because I remember when she got killed and it was freaking super, super sad story. I even know where I know where she is. I know what cemetery she's in. And let's just say she was crushed by a wood pile. Okay. And this wood pile was the wood that they used to build the house with. So there's a lot of weird stuff now. One of the other children that also got buried in the wood pile who and survived is actually a very close friend of mine, is married to another one of my best buddies. I was actually their best man at their wedding, which was at that house. And their son is my godson. I called her the other night talk to her about it and she's like wow 
So she's trying to get me some information from her mom about, you know, was the girl, you know, how was she dressed? Because I just want to compare it. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to disclose that to the people I'm going to be interviewing because I want to see how accurate the story is. Wow. And the one thing that freaks the guy out, the owner of the house now is like, well, why would she want to stick around? And I explained to him, there's different types of ghosts and different types of hauntings. You think you about you wanted to ask about what time of year uh, they saw uh, the ghost uh, or ghost seasonal. Like, would that would that make some kind of an impact? Well, it would be interesting if she's seen around the same time or the same dates that she was killed. Right. To me, just in my investigator, investigatory brain, well, that is a theory. That's gonna that's gonna mean something. That is a, a potential theory that people have have you know hypothesized with these types of encounters that there is so much you know energy and, and trauma. <laughs> that is expelled in one single moment that their astral body leaves their physical body isn't aware you know their soul you know then joins that and then they're not aware maybe that they died and every you know annually when that event takes place or you know the every year s since you know that energy is expelled again somehow maybe out of the earth or who knows i mean yeah it's it's really fascinating to say the least. And that's what I that's what I told this guy. I said, consider the fact that she might not know she's dead. Right, right. He had a hard time wrapping his head around that one. But it's all I can get into right now. That's fine. But I know the story. I know what happened. I know all the people involved. Hmm. And when this guy ever said, oh, you mean the little girl? Mm -hmm. It freaking floored me. Right. It really did. As a matter of fact, I got I have to call my friend in Colorado and run it by him because he blames himself for his little sister getting killed. And the last time we talked about that was probably 20 years ago because he's, he's been, he's been out West for over 20 years, but I just wouldn't feel right getting into the story any deeper on any shows unless I talk to him first. I just, I feel funny about it. Uh, but you know when he listens to the show too, so he's probably going to put two and two together. But uh, but but I am really, I'm really hot on this on this encounter. Like like I really, but I'm uh... but I really need to stay unbiased like as much as possible. But just the fact, just the few things that this guy told me, like oh my god, this is like, and it was this time of year. It was this time of year. She, I want to say it was uh, in October that the accident happened. I'm still loving this idea of like seasonal hauntings. And it makes me think like maybe pumpkin spice is actually like something that attracts ghosts. And that's why it <laughs> has this trigger. resurgence uh, wow. every October on Halloween. Maybe if it's that like, was the case. Then every it's, coffee it's like shop would be catnip. haunted. Especially in New England, right, Thomas? 
<laughs> where, where all the Dunkin' Donuts, everything is pumpkin spice. So, yeah, donkeys. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. All so, right. Uh, so I, I do think uh, in, in all seriousness, I do think some hauntings are seasonal. Uh, they might happen around when they were married. It might happen around whenever they had an accident or whenever they died. Another quick story from my town is the story of the piccolo players. The piccolo the players. Pic- yeah, have you have I ever told you this story, Mark? No, I'm still trying to tell my story that relates to Thomas's story about the train tracks, but tell us about the oh, piccolo players. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. We'll do the piccolo players after. All right. Well, we'll let, why don't we why don't we have the piccolo players be the finale we'll we'll (laughs) stick around folks don't tune out yet we'll listen to ron's piccolo players (laughs) this is it while you while you're doing that i still i'll be able to hear you but i need a pit stop so i'm gonna take a pit stop go for it and i'm gonna turn my camera off but i will be able to hear you okay cool and i'll be I'll be right back. Well, good, because we have a foreign correspondent who's going to be joining us for this segment. And, uh, Thomas, I'm glad you're here for this because I noticed on the Union of the Unwanted, John Keel was mentioned, and he's somebody who, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at the UFO uh, phenomena. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of people, when they think of UFOs, they think of maybe like more sci-fi stuff and like spaceships and extraterrestrials. But, you know, some of the earlier cases of UFOs are more spooky and I don't know, more, I guess, similar to what we would see in folklore and kind of ghost encounter type situations or maybe even fairy encounter situations. Um, so the the whole idea of cattle being taken, right? I wonder, you know, if there's something about cows, because everybody, you know, we drink milk, right? Cows are revered and worshipped in India. And remember the part about the iron, because I remember one time Tara and I, we found this uh, iron spike when we we're crossing the train tracks going to, on this hiking spot and I looked it up and there's like a, you know, a use magically for iron spikes that you would get from a railroad because of the iron content. You could use it to ward off spirits and things like this. So uh, keep that in mind because that's, that's the loose segue from your story that you shared, Thomas. But the story that I found kind of relates to the whole cattle mutilation topic, maybe not as gruesome because these cows uh, apparently didn't get uh, chopped up like they do in some reports but this story comes from india and it's a story about a cow eating tree and i have a foreign correspondent here that's queued up we're gonna we're gonna go to her uh on the screen here let me just cue her up and uh okay let's play Uh, Her name is uh, Sophie Rodriguez, apparently. If a dog bites a man, it is not news. But if a man bites a dog, it is news. Similarly, a small village near Upinangadi is in news these days. Cow-eating tree has become a center of attraction in Patrame, a remote village near Upinangadi. No, it's not village folklore, but a fact. 
The villagers claim that the tree tried to gobble a cow that went grazing. Fifteen days back, a strange incident took place in the small village near Opinangadi. And the villagers even to this day have not come out of the shock. Believe it or not, this remote village Patrame has a cow-eating tree. So now they're going to play some music. I watched this ahead of time. This is a great video that our foreign correspondent put together here. And they play some funky elevator music and they pretty much show the same footage over and over again. But this is the tree that they're showing right now. This is a tree that the locals allegedly, they call it the, the tiger tree. And there are legends of this tiger tree uh, taking livestock and eating it, right? And I mean... Who knows, you know, uh, if, if it's the tree. I mean, obviously people know about like the Venus flytrap and I don't know, it's kind of out there to think that a, a tree, especially one that thin, I don't know if our audio audience will, the message will be conveyed, but it's a very thin, skinny tree. And according to the story, this man, uh, he saw his cow being taken up by the tail by this tree and he quickly ran over with his machete and started whacking it and cutting it uh, and in the video they interview uh, some of the villagers unfortunately that it's not in english um but it's still interesting nonetheless they play some x-files footage behind uh, some x-files <laughs> music behind it as you can hear um and this the this tree woman was about to gobble the cattle when Vasanna was doing. So then I'll play the, the clip a little bit more uh, in a moment. But yeah, the, there are a couple witnesses to this. And apparently what they did after the uh, the cow was freed from this killer tree was they rubbed the uh, like an iron piece of iron on the bark of the tree. I mean, they they cut the tree, but. Apparently, that was to ward off this evil spirit that allegedly can inhabit something like a tree and then use that tree and, and animate it and, uh, you know, use the tree to sort of consume living things for, you know, some purpose. Who knows? Maybe these, you know, demonic spirits or, or what have you. But in a way, it's all it's not all that dissimilar from what we have going on in the United States and other countries where cows are mysteriously found chopped up or dismembered and, uh, you know, uh, their blood is taken from them all over, uh, the Midwest. And even back into European history, there are stories of livestock having its blood drained almost like a vampire. And that's something that, you know, is a big, factor in these cattle mutilations is that it seems like surgical process is undergone where you know certain body parts are removed inexplicably and all the blood is drained and it's you know, nowhere to be found and when these cattle mutilations started going around people were claiming that you know helicopters were flying over ranches at night and you know these like phantom cow rustlers were coming out and stealing cows and leaving these you know, dead cows behind as some sort of you know warning or threat and then as it developed people started thinking like oh no this must be like a, a satanic cult or something 
And Charles Fort, who talked about these types of accounts way before any of the cattle mutilations in the 1970s happened, uh, he he thought that there was some sort of occult hierarchy that was working, you know, to do all of these sort of evil acts in concert because he noticed that, you know, when these livestock would have their blood drained, there would be, uh, you know, maybe miles away in the same time an event where somebody sees like a phantom or somebody gets killed in a, a murder. And, you know, he saw that these things all lined up. So he started thinking that there was some sort of phantom force that was, you know, doing uh, evil on a massive level, a bigger level than, than we can like, you know, localize. Like it's something that happens seemingly uh, in multiple places at once, like these mass events that at, you know, local level seem unconnected, but when you look at it in the grand scheme, it was like they were happening at spe- specific times, which again kind of connects to what Ron brought up with the seasonal hauntings. I mean, not that you know this is necessarily with uh, a, a certain like cycle where it's happening, you know, on a predictable basis, but John Keel and Charles Fort, who have looked at all these encounters and strange uh, events, they they noticed that there are these patterns, you know, with the dates that line up. And, yeah, you got to wonder, like, what's really going on with these uh, cattle mutilations. But I thought it was particularly interesting that this happened in India, where the cow is worshipped, you know, and they have... Tons of cows, like, you know, the types of cows we have in America are pretty big. So you'd have to think to yourself, like, well, how's a, a thin little tree like that going to grab a cow? But you got to well, keep in mind How that, does even, like, a redwood grab a cow? Let's not even get into the the size of the tree. Let's get to the, like, how does a tree eat a cow? Well, if it's animated by some sort of supernatural force, I mean, uh, yeah, who knows? I, this defies physics for sure, but I just wanted I, to point so out... questions, though. Does it, like, the bark open up and turn into a mouth and, like, start Well, the what they reported or? was that the, 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 the vine or, like, the branch was reaching down and grabbing the cow and pulling it up, like, to, to kill it almost, and maybe... That's like in Wizard of Oz. Well... Yeah. Oh, the apples that Dorothy and everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's in like in the Wizard of Oz. That's true. But what I was it's gonna wild say, you would chop that tree down. Like maybe this is just a dirty, you know, evil capitalism. But for the amount of traffic and tourism you could pull into your town, if you had the world's only cow-eating tree. No one would have to work in that village ever again. They could just no. charge admission. No. no, or is it, or is it like one of those trees where if you take out a cell phone, the tree like it, it goes Toy Story mode. It like stops being animated. I well, that's the thing. I don't know that they would turn it into a tourist attraction, considering that it's in the deep in the middle of nowhere in India, not very accessible. 
to tourism. I mean, if, if you were like a ghost hunter and that was your thing and someone was like, hey, we've got this, yeah. you know, cow eating well, tree. My point was going to be that the cows in India are smaller than you'd think. There's species of cows that are like about the size of a, a pig. And I guess I'm, I'm not caught up on the size of the tree and the size well, of the Well, I had cow, to look though. this up because I'm like, how does a tree this small pick up a cow? And I had to look it <laughs> That's up. That's the only point in line. Like if the tree were just bigger, it would be like, like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. No, 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 no. The cows are are what matters in this equation because the tree is small. So I'm like thinking to myself, what kind of cows do they have in India? And I looked it up and there's 30 different breeds of cows. And some of them are only like three feet tall. So, yeah, I, I could see a smaller cow being I pulled. I want a three-foot cow. Are you kidding me? Yeah, some of them are pretty small. And I'm like, hmm, if a cow's three, four feet tall at the shoulders, I could see a tree, you know, tangling it up. I mean, I would say, you know, skeptics. Well, I know it happened in real life. I don't think these people are lying. I'm just from the skeptical and open-minded dual duality trying to understand it from all sides. And I, I could see how maybe a skeptic would say, well, a cow could get its t a tail tangled in a tree. But then that suggests that these witnesses are so dumb that they couldn't tell the difference between a tree attacking their cow and a tree, a cow getting tangled in a tree. I mean, to me, you know, I think these people are probably smart enough to know that cows, you know, from time to time might get their tails t tangled in things and they're probably accustomed to that. Right. So this report obviously got and ron so, sorry you missed this but uh we had our foreign correspondent i don't know if you heard uh with some very cool footage from this uh village in india for the video audience I, no i heard it mark okay good it. but yeah I, i'm just like yeah i don't think these people would make all this up for like thomas's point to create some kind of tourist attraction where people would bring their cows to be killed by a tree i mean this is an ancient rome thomas i don't know that farmers have the the money nor the interest in sacrificing their cow to a tree especially in india where cows are revered and protected and sacred you know it's like that's yeah. that's i think that's part of what makes these cattle mutilations so weird it's like it's not it's not like sheep. It's not goats. Maybe if it was goats, then it would be like mm, Baphomet or something. But, you know, <laughs> when it comes to cows, it's like, yeah, it's kind of a, it, it's an animal that comes up in religious symbolism over and over again. And it's falling victim to these really weird uh, instances where, uh, as we pointed out, cows are found, you know, completely mutilated. Now, Ron, I don't know. I've never heard of any cattle mutilations happening in this part of the world in New England. Have you? No, I, I, well, I don't know. You know, the one to research on that would be Linda Moulton Howe, uh, mm -hmm. because she does a lot about cow mutilations. And uh, actually, if I'm not mistaken, there were some cow mutilations in northern Maine I would have to look into that because northern Maine, okay, is very sparsely populated. A lot of weird stuff happens up there. Mm. And, and especially in this one place they call the county, which is Aroostook County. Uh, and it's actually spelled Aroostook. Mm. But people, you know, they pronounce it Arusta, 
So up in Aroostook County, a lot of weird stuff happens. And up in the Allagash, hmm. a lot of weird stuff happens. Have you ever heard so of the... It seems, the, the, seems to me I did hear about cattle mutilations either in Aroostook County or in Allagash. Right. But I would have to double check that. I would have to look into it. No, that. let's look that up. Have you ever heard of uh, the ghost moose to... As we wind down before we hear your story of the piccolo? Uh, no, the ghost moose. I'm not familiar with that one. So there are these accounts up in Canada and Maine and places where there are moose uh, of these spirit moose that are seen at night glowing, moving through the forest, these big, huge, phantom-looking moose. And, yeah, people uh, are oftentimes really frightened by them. One, I think one story, someone was confronted by one as they were leaving their tent, like, uh, in, you know, I think late summer as they're camping up in Maine, and they see this giant ghost moose in front of them as they exit their tent after they're, you know, hearing some kind of rustling and going out to see what's going on and, you know, probably saw something glowing as well, you know, through the tent. But yeah, I, I just thought I'd mention that since you said Maine, but, uh, but yeah, the cattle mutilations, moose are not that different from cattle. I mean, they're kind of like big deer more than anything or elk, but yeah, interesting stuff. Have there been historical reports of that too? Kind of like there's been historical reports of, you know, UFOs and extraterrestrials. Cattle relations? Like stories from, yeah, from like the 17 or 1800s. Oh, yeah. That's stuff? something that Charles Fort noted that in, in the UK in like the 17th, 16th and, you know, beyond, you know, even earlier, there were stories of, they would kind of call them more like vampires because, you know, back then they didn't have any, you know, surgery the way they do now so they didn't really think of it in that terms they would find their their cattle or their sheep like drained of blood and say like oh a vampire being you know came and took my sheep in the night you know there's there's definitely stories going back i think i have a few in this book here phenomena a book of wonders uh i had bookmarked it because i wanted to talk about the cow tree but yeah cattle mutilations are something that goes back for quite a while it's really strange i think they even thought back then that yeah so back then there was a monk or i'm sorry an archbishop named agabard and apparently the people came to him or i'm sorry he saw some people carrying these people away and he was like you know who are these people here let me find it instead of just paraphrasing um Let's see. So, long before any known airship, there was a belief in airships. Agabard, Archbishop of Lyon in the 9th century, was confronted with a crowd of local people escorting four prisoners who they said had been caught landing from an airship. They re this is in the 9th century. They landed from an airship. They requested the Archbishop's leave to stone them. Agabard refused, not believing the airship story, and later reported uh, that the locals were so unreasonable as to believe and assert that there's a certain region called Magonia, hence where ships come in the clouds, which bear away the fruits of the earth to that same country. So here are these stories from the ninth century of these people coming from airships and stealing things from, from their, you know, 
from their fields, fruit, the fruit of the earth. So, I mean, could have been crops, could have been animals. I mean, who knows? And that suggests that maybe these flying saucers, or as they were called back then, airships, maybe they've taken on different forms historically. You know, some researchers think that that suggests that there's some sort of plasma that responds to our consciousness and uh, f- appears in whatever form fits our notion of reality. Uh, but yeah, it seems like there's this other that's been here, you know, interacting with us and yeah, from time to time taking our agriculture. Reminds so. me a little bit of Time Cop because I mean, so in Time Cop, they would go back and steal like gold, they would go to like the Civil War and steal, you know. Hmm. Um, but if you actually went back long enough people might not realize that you're not stealing their cattle and their fruit. You're stealing their natural resources. Like you're going there to steal their, their cobalt, right. Or, or their iron or their whatever. Um, I don't know. That, that might be another factor to that. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe that's just like a ancillary part of the mission. They're like getting gold and other things. And then they're like, Oh, we're hungry. Let's get a cow real <laughs> Let's quick. Grab some know? apples. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I mean, yeah. And that's something that Jacques Vallée wrote about in Passport to Magonia, where he, you know, basically lists all of these UFO or alien type encounters going back to that time period and, and even earlier than that. And, uh, yeah, we, we've heard tons of interesting stories tonight, but as we kind of wind down here, Ron has a good one for us. You mentioned it before. Uh, tell us about it, Ron. Tell us about what you said is the Piccolo man or the Piccolo phantom. Actually the Piccolo players, the Piccolo players. Okay. So, uh, and this is a pretty quick story, but. Uh, just to kind of piggyback on the cattle mutilations, yeah, I did find a map, and it actually shows two cattle mutilations dating one from the late 70s and one in northern New Hampshire from the early 80s, so... Oh, wow. Just a little, just a little follow up on that, yeah. but I'm not seeing anything in Maine on this map. Huh. <clears throat> Either way, so still anyways, this answers the question. So the story, the story of the piccolo players. Yeah. Now in New England, we have lots and lots of cemeteries, right? And of course, New England is is deep in the history of the Revolutionary War, right? And just in my town alone, and I know this because I was the president of the Historical Society for about 10 years, and we were doing a survey of all the known cemeteries, or documented cemeteries in my town, right? Excuse me. And we have 27 documented cemeteries in my town. Now, that's just the major cemeteries. It's not including little cemeteries on people's private properties, like on my on my family's property where the farm is and where the haunted garage is. We actually have a cemetery on our property there. That's not what we call a documented cemetery. 
means, yes, it's a cemetery, but it's not part of the 27 documented cemeteries that we have in town. So in these cemeteries, you will find one, two, or more people that were buried there that fought in the revolution. And we even have markers for them. And then we have markers for the people that were daughters of the American Revolution, which was a, which was a society, right? Uh, so on this older road, of course, when I was a kid growing up, there weren't many houses on this road, but this is the road that we traveled to get to the pond where all the kids would swim. And it's actually uh, the one beach in this town that's open to the town for people to go swimming. And on this road, there's a cemetery. Now, it's a small cemetery, right? It's not very big. I want to say it's probably, oh, it's probably smaller than the inside of my shop. So it's probably a 50 by 50 or a 40 by 40 cemetery. There's not a lot of graves in it, but there are some graves in there from Revolutionary War veterans. Right. Whether or not they were killed in the war, you know, I can't answer that. I'd have to look into it a little bit more. But across the street from this cemetery was a house. It's still there to this day. And it was one of the early houses built on this road. Now, when I say early houses, this house was probably built in the 1930s, 1940s when there's actually houses, like two houses on this road or three houses that date back, one day back, dates back to early 1800s. And then the other one is a big farmhouse. And that one, I want to say, is probably mid-1800s, like right around Civil War era. But anyways, this house that's across the street from the cemetery, uh, a young family was living in this house at the time. And the gentleman, the father, was actually a police officer. Now, he wasn't a police officer in our town, but he was a police officer in the city of Concord, which is right next door. Now, this guy is still alive to this day. I'm actually, I, I still uh, am friendly with him and his wife. And, and actually, I dated one of his daughters at one time, actually for quite a while. But. I was told this story way before I even met this guy. And then I asked him about it later in life, and he verified the story. So it, this goes back to the seasonal thing, Thomas. So how the story goes is that on Christmas Eve, these ghosts come out of the cemetery, and they perform how they performed when they were marching during the Revolutionary War. So there was a, a flag bearer, and there were two piccolo players. Now, normally, if you look at the pictures of the Revolution, you see one guy playing the drum, one guy carrying the flag, and the other guys playing the piccolo, right? And a piccolo is basically like a flute. It's just smaller, right? So what you would call like the fife and drum core when they were marching into battle. So anyways, it was a Christmas Eve. 
And this guy's name is Dave. So once all the kids had gone to sleep, him and his wife stayed up wrapping presents, getting everything ready for Christmas morning. And it was late at night. And he said he was exhausted. Said he sat down on his couch and just basically passed out. Right. And, and I know from being a grown up with little ones that when you stay up late on Christmas Eve, you've already had a super long, stressful day. You're going to kick back, have a few drinks, maybe calm down, try to get yourself into sleep mode. And then you're going to pass out and hopefully you get everything done so that you don't have to get up at six o'clock in the morning or as soon as that sun peeks over the trees and the kids are ready to open presents, right? So, so he passes out on the couch and he gets woken up and standing in front of him in his living room are these three revolutionary war guys and one of them is playing the piccolo, playing some, you know, marching music or whatever. And it's almost like they, they didn't acknowledge him. They were just there, kind of like walking in place, like they were marching, and he could hear the music. And he was like just frozen. And he said, it is, it is, it is, as quickly as they were there, they disappeared. So he's like, okay, I, I'm dreaming this or whatever. Maybe I had... You know, a little too much wine. Maybe I'm just overtired. So, you know, past the Christmas hubbub, he's talking to the old man that actually built the house and he ended up buying the house off this guy. Now, this old guy was a local plumber and he lived right down the street in this old house. And this guy was pain right in everybody's ass. As a matter of fact, he laid claim to every piece of property on that road. And if you bought a piece of property on that road, well, you had to get him to sign off on it. And I know this because my parents bought three pieces of property on that road. And they had to have this guy sign off on every single one of them on the deeds. So, you know, instead of going to court and fighting this guy, my father just went up to say, look at how much, what's it going to cost? And back in the day, it might have only been a couple of hundred bucks, but you were buying property for like two or three thousand dollars, like, like you know, for big pieces of property, right? So, anyways, Dave goes up and he's having this conversation with this guy, and he goes, "Man, I had the weirdest thing happen to me on Christmas Eve." And the guys, and the guys, like, "Oh, really? What happened?" And he tells him the story, and the guy says, "Oh, yeah, that's the piccolo players." And he goes, what do you mean, the piccolo players? He goes, yeah, that's the ghost of the piccolo players. He said, they're buried in a cemetery right across the street from your house. He said, he said, several other houses on this road have all seen the piccolo players. And it always happens to be on or right around Christmas, Christmas Eve. Wow. Wow. Maybe they so, so the guy verified the story. And then, you know, I heard the story from a gentleman who lived right next door to the cemetery. And Dave was telling him the story 
because when he moved in, it was just a piece of land and he built a little house there. He was actually from East Providence, Rhode Island, and he would come up here on the weekends. And Dave goes over and, you know, befriended him while they were building a house. He said, listen, if you're up here around Christmas and you happen to see this, don't worry, it's just the piccolo players. Really cool story. Uh, I, I've actually gone and checked out the cemetery, but I, what I really want to do is I want to go to the cemetery and I want to and I want to search the graves, and I want to try to do the genealogy to see if this story is one hundred percent legit, if they are from the revolution, and if they were a part of the Fife and Drum Corps. Wow. Anyways. This is a little cool story from my town. Yeah. That uh, only only a few people in our town actually know that story. Because that road is now that road is house, 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 house. I mean it's just houses, big housing developments on it. But but uh, this cemetery is like one of the oldest cemeteries in town. Wow. Well, right on. So Ron, I'm sure there's much more to follow given that both of your stories are loose-ended, so hopefully we get some more details on both fronts and uh, people can go to the Wicked Planet podcast to hear that, I'm sure. And uh, Thomas, you are the paranoid American, of course, and you got your own YouTube channel, finally. Any news from Paranoid American or anything you want to promote before we wrap up here? I just set up an RSS feed today. Welcome wow. to the year 2000, right? <laughs> but uh, I, so now I think you can find Paranoid American on Amazon and Spotify and cool. Apple or I think so. I don't know. I don't know yet. We'll figure that out. And then uh, we just, we're going to announce maybe next week. I don't know, but chaostwins.com is the new project I've been working on with Sam Tripoli. And it's a, uh, an all-ages, kid-friendly, conspiracy, paranormal-themed comic book, which if you hear Sam Tripoli and Paranoid American and conspiracy, you might not expect kid-friendly or family-friendly in that same sentence, uh, but it's a, it's a new endeavor, and I think we're going to knock it out of the park. I think it's the coolest story uh, ever for this kind of stuff. So that's that's what's going on in my world lately, among with a million other things that you can find at ParanoidAmerican.com. Cool. Right on. And uh, Ron, of course, the Wicked Planet podcast, recorded every Wednesday, usually out after that. Uh, Buckley's there. Anything you want to promote before we leave here? Uh, no, uh, just to let Thomas know that uh, that my kid here, Little G, she will be all over that comic book when it comes out. It's, it's basically made for her, so it's coming. Yeah. Right yeah, on. she's quite an illustrator herself and writes stories, so uh, it, it might uh, it might be kind of like a little inspiration for her as well. Cool. I hope so, man. I, that would be the coolest thing ever if it inspires someone else to want to make a comic, even if it's just, you know, like in their notebook. That's the coolest thing. She absolutely loves conspiracy. She was on the show once. We talked SpongeBob conspiracies. <laughs> it was. It ended up. I got a lot of flack from some listeners for having a little kid on the show, but I tell you what, a lot of people listened to that show. And the other morning, when we were out waiting for the bus, she's like, 
Hey, Uncle Ron, when can I come on the show again? I got a bunch of conspiracies I could talk about. We're talking about 9-11, kid. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, uh, so anyways, uh, be looking forward to that, Thomas. I uh, wish you all the luck with your endeavors with this project with the Chaos Twins and Sam. Really looking forward to that. Uh, Mark, my family thinks I'm crazy. And little Miss Tara, thank <laughs> you for asking me to come on to do a little Halloween special. I really enjoyed it. Of course. And, uh, and you can find the Wicked Planet uh, podcast everywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can also find us through Alt Media United, Mark's little co-op deal he's got going. And uh, we're on all the podcatchers. And you can find me on Instagram at Ron from New England or the Wicked Planet podcast page. Wonderful. Well, all right. And folks know where to find me. You've been listening uh, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Ron, Thomas, you're free to share this. Now that, Thomas, you have your own RSS feed, maybe this will be your first swap cast. So congratulations. That's right. Yeah, thank you. You're initiated in the podcast club. And uh, awesome. It's about time, Thomas. Cheers. Great episode. I'm only like three years late since I started. (laughs) Well, that's all right. All in good, all in due timing. So never too late. Never too late. (laughs) All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in and uh, have fun on this spooky Halloween. All right. That was our episode with Thomas, a.k.a. Paranoid American and Ron and. He's from the Wicked Planet podcast. Tara, of course, has been joining me on this podcast and maybe has her own podcast in the works. Look forward to that. Um, Please do support our guests today and support me with a one-time donation if you can. Uh, It really does help. I just moved into a new apartment and got to pay the bills and... That is partly why we are going to be doing uh, dynamic ads. I know I always said, oh, I never do that. I never do that. Oh, I never do that. Well, I'm selling out, folks. I'm very sorry to do that to you. But if you like the show and you really hate the ads, it's really not that big of a deal to pay $5 a month. Uh, I'm not a hypocrite. I support literally a dozen different podcasts each month. Uh, you could argue, oh, well, then why don't you just stop doing that? And then you'd save, you know, 12 times $5. Uh, what's that, 60 bucks? Yeah, not that much. So I really don't mind it, but I think it's about time that we rein the show in. It's been free for long enough, but we could definitely put some ads in the show. Uh, Broken Sim, uh, Sam and Johnny, they throw all the ads pretty much at the end of the show, or at least they used to. So I'll try to do that. Uh, but I, I got to make some money off the freeloaders because, you know, unfortunately, even with top ranked gold standard podcasts that have hundreds of supporters, even they say that they're only getting 10% of their listenership to actually support. So uh, if that's the case, I think we're way over 10% of what we uh, get, you know, 10,000 downloads per episode, less than 200 supporters. Eh, That's not 10%. But anyways, 
hopefully we can get to that. And whoever's listening, you're listening, wherever you are, support the show. You can do it. I'm talking to you right now. $5 a month, even if you just give us $5 now and then let their credit card decline. No big deal. At least I got $5 out of you. So support the show. Get the show ad-free while you still can. Uh, shout out to The Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. Garrett's been keeping me going. Uh, he's been supporting the show. Uh, unfortunately, he's had to scale down his operation a bit. But I think you could still order The the Hit Kit with the promo code uh, CRAZY at checkout to save some money. Um, so go and do that. Support Garrett. He's on Instagram. Look him up, The Hit Kit. And uh, yeah, hitkit.us. So can't forget to give him a shout out uh patriot whatever the fuck that didn't work out that dumb clothing (laughs) they were nice enough to pay me for four ads but i had a feeling that wasn't gonna work out so uh yeah we're gonna do the dynamic ads and you guys are just gonna shut up and like it and if you don't like it well you can support the show and get ad free uh content and of course If you love the show, like I know you do, give us a five-star rating or interview. It's just as good as sending in a one-time donation. So thank you so much, folks, for tuning into this very spooky Halloween episode. Be safe out there and trick or treat.
in their seats and the wolves on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles Consumerism, living in their vacant smiles uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly I'm touching base with things I can't explain Gods without names on a different plane Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service, can't reach me on the circuit Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, 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 wait.